Tech Writer Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 723 for the 18th of December, 2020. This week, renaming files is easy when you have just one or two, but there's a big difference if you have dozens, hundreds, or even thousands of files that need to be renamed. Fortunately, there's an app for that. In short circuits, laptop computers are quickly replacing big desktop systems for most people, but usually there are too few USB ports. A USB hub can help, but maybe a dock would be a better choice. Let's take a look. Even if you don't use Adobe's InDesign, taking a look at what Adobe has added to the 2020 version is a good use of your time. I'll summarize the new features and explain why they're worth knowing about. In spare parts, only on the website, as of mid-2021, Google will eliminate free unlimited photo storage, so let's see what your options are. Password disasters continue to be far too common, and password manager Dashlane has identified what the company calls the worst offenders. And 20 years ago, how much was 520 megabytes? Not much by today's standards, but in 2000, it was a big deal. Admittedly, this week's main topic is a bit esoteric, but stick with me please for just a bit because you might find it to be useful, at least occasionally, and besides, I have a couple of good puns. Maybe. The bulk rename utility, as the name strongly suggests, is a utility for renaming files, and thank you very much, Captain Obvious, for that explanation. Why might you need a utility to rename files? After all, it's an easy enough thing to do in the Windows File Explorer. Just click the file name a second at a time, or press F2, or choose Rename from the ribbon. What could be easier? So, to be clear, I don't use the bulk rename utility if I need to rename just one or two files. Around the end of November, I needed to process nearly 150 files using a process that changed the capitalization of the file name without my permission. It's not a big deal because Windows isn't case-sensitive. afile.txt in all lowercase is the same as afile.txt with A and the F in file capitalized. The file manager sees no difference. The procedure that processed the files converted the names to title case, a file I had named 3x5y some file name dot text was converted to 3 capital X 5 lowercase y uppercase s on some uppercase f on file and uppercase n on name then dot txt. I liked having the title case in the some file name part, but that. 3 capital X 5 lowercase y part was annoying. In my example, 3x 5y, the 3 could be any number from 1 to 6, and the 5y part could be absent. If it was present, the number was never higher than 3, and x and y were always the same letters. 
I could have done a little command line ninja work or write a directory of the file names to disk and create a macro that would rename the files. Either of those would have required some testing that might have taken longer than just manually renaming 130 files. This is exactly the kind of situation that calls for the bulk rename utility. But a more common use might be, oh, say, to rename files from a digital camera. My photography workflow always starts with Adobe Lightroom, and Lightroom allows me to rename all files when I import them into the catalog. But not all photo applications allow for renaming. So digital photographers have directory after directory filled with names like img underscore 27558.cr2. Having a descriptive name really does help when you have tens of thousands of files. When I import files, I add a descriptive word or two followed by an underscore, the original file name, and then my initials. I also have Lightroom convert the files to Adobe's DNG format, so the file I mentioned previously, img underscore 27558.cr2, might become Halloween underscore img underscore 27588 underscore bb.dng. The bulk rename utility, of course, cannot convert files from a proprietary format to DNG, but it can easily add the prefix, the word Halloween and an underscore, and the suffix underscore BB, my initials. The bulk rename utility, which is free for personal use, offers an amazing number of options, and that's why many people panic when they see the interface. So the important first step is to understand that you do not have to fill out all of the little text boxes or place check marks in any of the selectors. Use only the ones you need to specify the name change you want. Leave everything else alone. The bulk rename utility has 14 major sections that include nearly 30 text boxes, more than 20 check boxes, and about a dozen drop-down selection lists. But to quote the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, don't panic. Here's some good news. If you want to know how every little part of the program works, you can download a manual. I have a link to it on the TechBiter Worldwide website. The bad news is that the manual is more than 50 pages long. The better news is that there's a handy online FAQ that answers a lot of questions. But the excellent news is that most of us don't need the manual or the FAQ. I have downloaded the manual because especially with the pandemic, I have no life outside the house, and I will read just about anything. If you have a really complex need, you might need the manual. That said, it's really not very hard to read the section headings on the user interface and figure out which ones you need. Say, for example, that you know regular expressions backwards and forwards. It's not quite clear what good there is to knowing them backwards, but forwards is good. Regex is box number one because it is the most powerful option. But most people haven't studied regular expressions, also known as regex. That's because doing so requires reading and understanding one or more 1,000-page books. I, for example, know exactly enough about regex to be very dangerous, so generally I move on to the other sections. Without using regex, I can rename files and folders, replace multiple file names with a fixed file name and a sequential number, convert file names or extensions to lowercase, uppercase, or title case, add a secondary extension or remove one, 
replace any text in the file name with any other text, add a fixed prefix or suffix, add text in the middle of the file name, remove any number of characters from the beginning or end of the file, and on and on and on. So let's try a real-life example. Let's say I accidentally set all the files for podcast 791, which will occur sometime in 2022, to 719, which ran on the 13th of November 2020. Now I need to fix that error. So I select the 719 directory and all the 719 files, select subfolders in the Filters section, and specify in the Replace section that 719 should be changed to 791. The Bulk Rename Utility shows the old name and the new name side by side, and all I would need to do if I wanted to commit that change would be to click the Rename button in the lower right corner. It's worth noting that changing the file names would not modify any links inside the Adobe Audition session file. When I opened the session file, it would report broken links, and I would need to resolve that problem. This isn't bulk rename utilities' fault. If I had renamed any of the files manually, exactly the same problem would have occurred. So it's up to the user to determine whether renaming a file will cause a problem. The bottom line for the bulk rename utility, five cats, even if you need to rename multiple files irregularly, this is a utility you should have on your machine. You may not need to rename a lot of files every day or every week or even every month, but when you do need to rename a batch of files, there's nothing better than bulk rename utility. It's free for home and non-commercial use. Commercial users should plan to license the application. The cost is $93 for a single computer for the commercial version, and that drops to $50 per seat if you have more than five computers. You'll find additional details on the Bulk Rename Utility website. There is a link, of course, from the TechBiter Worldwide website, www.techbiter.com. If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, might you consider a donation? There are no ads here, and support from listeners is the sole source of income. It's easy. Just visit the website and click the Donate button near the top of any page. You can make a one-time donation or schedule a repeating donation every month. I thank you. And so does the cat. In short circuits, how about if we call this segment, What's Up, Doc? Perhaps you've noticed that USB devices have proliferated so much that they outnumber the quantity of ports offered by the computer. That would be a good reason to add a dock, but there's an overwhelming number of options. Maybe you don't need a dock, but just a simple hub. The primary computer I use has two USB 3 ports and a single mini display port on the right side of the box. There is a single HDMI port, an Ethernet port, a Thunderbolt 3 port, and two USB ports on the back. The computer sits in a dock made by the computer manufacturer, and the dock itself adds six USB ports, an Ethernet port, two DisplayPort ports, one HDMI port, one DVI port, and one VGA connector. That seems like it should be enough, but it isn't. Check the TechBiter Worldwide website for an explanation of why that's not enough.
Docks are about more than just USB connections, and there are more docks than just those offered by the computer manufacturer. The computer manufacturer will provide a docking port that's typically on the bottom of the notebook computer. Third-party docks almost always connect using a Thunderbolt 3 or USB-C port. Let's try to keep some of the terminology straight, so we'll look through the progression of USB technology. There was USB 1.1, full speed, 12 megabits per second, maximum data transfer rate. Next was USB 2.0, called high speed, 480 megabits per second, maximum transfer rate. USB 3.0 came next, super speed, 5 gigabits per second, maximum data transfer rate. That increased to 10 gigabits per second with version 3.1 and to 20 gigabits per second with version 3.2. Then USB 4.0 based on Thunderbolt 3 specifications for 40 gigabits per second, maximum data transfer rate. So the current technologies are USB 3 and 4 and Thunderbolt 3 and 4. USB-C is more a description of a connector type than a description of the underlying technology. To make things even more confusing, Apple's original Thunderbolt connector was identical to a mini DisplayPort connector. That was resolved with Thunderbolt 3 that uses a USB Type-C connector. You know, we could be forgiven for thinking that the people who design, specify, and manufacture these things are attempting to confuse us. So let's leave the confusion for a bit and consider a practical application for a dock. How many video ports does your computer have? Many have just one, which is sufficient if you want to connect a single external monitor. And believe me, if you have been using the notebook's built-in monitor, you will never want to go back to that after adding a large external monitor. But what if your notebook computer doesn't have two ports? At least in some cases, Apple provides two mini display ports. I know that because I have an older MacBook Pro that has two. My Lenovo Windows computer, though, has just one. It's possible to daisy chain multiple monitors on a display port, port, but this won't work if your computer has an HDMI connector or even older technology. Besides providing more USB ports, a dock can also add video ports for multiple monitors. A USB-C port that supports Thunderbolt 3 will allow a single cable to deliver power and transfer large amounts of data to and from the computer. This includes the impressive ability to serve video data for two 4K external monitors running with a 60 Hz refresh rate without dragging down disk performance. The problem, then, is to determine whether your computer's USB-C port supports Thunderbolt 3, or maybe Thunderbolt 4. The ports are identical in appearance, and not even the latest Microsoft Surface Pro 7 supports Thunderbolt 3. Maybe a Surface Pro 8, which will probably arrive next year sometime, will do that. Don't hold your breath. Some notebook computers come only with Wi-Fi. But if you use a computer where a wired connection is available, being able to use Ethernet will make a big difference. Adding a dock to a notebook computer can provide that Ethernet connection, in addition to video connections, more USB connections, and even power connections. It's worth a look for the computer on your desk or for when you buy a new computer.
InDesign is one of the more specialized applications in Adobe's Creative Cloud, but updates and improvements in one application sometimes give clues about what Adobe might introduce in other applications. So let's take a look at the October 2020 version of InDesign. It's a typesetting and layout application that can be used to create business cards and stationery, although Illustrator is probably the more common choice for jobs like that. Its primary use is developing brochures, pamphlets, magazines, and books. TextWrap has been improved this year. It's easy to wrap text around a regular object, such as a rectangle or an oval, but irregular objects are much more difficult. InDesign can use Adobe's artificial intelligence to identify the main subject in an image and then create a contour around it. The contour is editable. Using the automated process to create a starting point can save a considerable amount of time. This, perhaps, is the most important of the new features. Another important new feature in the latest version is called Share for Review. A document that's being written, edited, or designed can be shared with individuals or publicly. Depending on the security required, users may need a password to access the document. Those who have been invited to view the document can leave comments. The document owner can then modify the publication and mark the issue as resolved, reply to the comment, or choose not to implement the suggested change and just simply to ignore it. Font management has been improved too. Typefaces can be installed generally, that is for use in all applications, or placed in a special directory so they're available only in InDesign. The problem with having access to so many typefaces via Adobe Type is that users install so many that working with them turns out to be difficult. The October 2020 version of InDesign adds an auto-activate function so that typefaces can be deactivated to reduce clutter, and then InDesign will automatically activate the needed Adobe typefaces if the typefaces called for in a document aren't installed when the document is opened. Now, this works only with Adobe fonts. If non-Adobe typefaces have been uninstalled or deactivated, the user will be warned about the missing typefaces when the document loads. That's the process that's been in place for many years. Colors are important to readers, and so they are also important to designers. InDesign's character styles have always allowed the user to specify exact colors. If a decision is made to change all of the, oh, say, for example, the second-level headlines in a publication from Pantone 285 to Pantone 574, simply changing a single style definition makes the change throughout the document no matter how long the document is or how many second-level headlines exist. What's new with InDesign 2020 is the ability to find and replace colors that are used in objects that are part of the document. And there's a new option for color management, Hue, Saturation, and Brightness, or HSB. The option joins spot colors, process colors, International Commission on Illumination colors, that one's called LAB, and the better-known CMYK and RGB colors. Some people find the HSB system to be easier to understand because it treats hue, saturation, and brightness independently. Hue is expressed as a position on a circle, think of the color wheel, with red at 0, or 360, and cyan at 180 degrees. Green is at 120, blue is at 240. 
These are pure color values with no reference to how bright or saturated the colors are. As a result, colors such as black, white, and gray are not expressed by the hue value. The saturation value expresses how strong a color is from 100%, which is completely saturated, to 0% completely desaturated. Complete desaturation represents white, black, or any shade of gray. The brightness value determines, well, brightness. 100% is the maximum, 0% the minimum. Black, white, and gray can have any hue value, a saturation value of 0%, and any brightness value from 0%, which would be black, to 100%, which is white, or any value in between, which would be gray. So to get back on track, what's the point of keeping an eye on improvements in applications you don't use? Well, Adobe shares technology among its various applications. Subject selection is a feature in Photoshop. Now it's present in InDesign. Likewise, text manipulation features developed for InDesign have found their way into Photoshop and Illustrator. Sometimes watching applications you don't use can make it possible to see around a corner and anticipate what's coming in one of the applications you do use. There are no corners you have to see around in spare parts. Just head over to the TechBiter Worldwide website and this week you'll find these articles. As of mid-2021, Google will eliminate free unlimited photo storage. Let's see what your options are. Password disasters continue to be far too common, and password manager Dashlane has identified what the company calls the worst offenders. And 20 years ago, just how much was 520 megabytes? Not much by today's standards, but in 2000, it was a big deal. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.